evidence and answers. I hear the term separation of church and state quite a bit. Is there any truth to this? What do the original documents actually say? Should we as Christians be bound by this? Is it even legal? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today, we're listening to another one of the exciting messages taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from across this nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God? And featured keynote speakers, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Without delay, let's listen as Dr. Richard Land discusses the question of church and state and reveals what is really said. I do live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Southern Evangelical Seminary is. For 25 years, I was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I retired from there, was retired one day. During that day, I was traveling from Nashville to Charlotte, and North Carolina is a lovely place, and my ancestors came from there way, way back, back during the Revolutionary War. But I am a sixth-generation Texan, and I feel compelled to tell you. How many people here from Texas? Anybody? I'm a sixth-generation Texan, but I'm bicultural. I know it doesn't look like it. I know it doesn't sound like it, but my dad is a fifth-generation Texan and sounded like Lyndon Johnson. He said ranch and paint and ain't and ice and rice and nice. My mother was from Boston, Massachusetts. I told you it was bicultural. So I grew up in a home with a father who sounded like Lyndon Johnson and a mother who sounded like Jack Kennedy. As the oldest child, I'm told that when I first started to talk, I'd alternate. I'd say, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. I also, my parents canceled out each other's vote in every election. I mean, literally, every election, my dad voted for the Democrat and my mother voted for the Republican. So I learned early that people of goodwill can disagree about politics. And by the way, when my father was voting for Stevenson and my mother was voting for Eisenhower and my father was voting for Kennedy and my mother was voting for Nixon and my father was voting for Johnson and my mother was voting for Goldwater, they were both wrong. Because my parents didn't disagree about any core issues, but they were voting a loyalty to their family and to their region of the country and to a party. Our loyalty doesn't belong to any family, doesn't belong to any region of the country, and it doesn't belong, least of all, to any political party. Our loyalty belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to vote our values and our beliefs and our convictions. I don't believe that we should be endorsing candidates, but we should be looking for candidates who endorse us and who endorse our values and who endorse our beliefs. I appreciate the reading of the passage in Peter about apologetics. Apologetics is the translation. It's of the apologia, a reasonable explanation of the hope that lies within you. We do have the evidence on our side. We need to share the evidence with people who have not heard the evidence. And we do want to win the argument. But we don't want to just win the argument. We want to win the person. Our enemy are not those people that we're witnessing to. Our enemy is not the people that disagree with us. The enemy is the evil one. He's the evil one who has them in his throat. And we want to liberate them through Jesus Christ. And 
I have a radio program that uh, is on uh, that you can get by going to ses.edu and downloading it on your app. The passage that is the name of the program is Bringing Every Thought Captive, and it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and following. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Our warfare is not fleshly warfare. It's spiritual warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. To the pulling down of strongholds and the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so we believe in bringing every thought captive. There's no area of knowledge, no subject, no area of inquiry that is beyond the purview of the truth that is revealed to us about Jesus Christ in Holy Scripture. And that was the ethic under which we were founded as a nation. You heard from Kirby earlier. They came here to be a city on a hill, to light the way for the old world. The New Jerusalem has always been a country. As Henry Kissinger once said, countries have interests. America is a cause, not a country. We do have interests as a nation and spheres of influence, but we're also a cause, and that cause is freedom and human dignity and a belief that all men are created equal. You heard Kirby talking about G.K. Chesterton, talking about America being founded on a creed. We need to understand that America is a unique country. It always has been a unique country. I knew this intellectually before I went to live in Great Britain in 1972. After I had finished seminary, I went to Oxford to do my PhD at Oxford University, and I lived in England for two years, 11 months, and four days. Not that I was counting the days. The reason I was counting the days is because of the national health system. The British health system is a horror and a nightmare, and we're going to have it now, and trust me, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like Obamacare, and I can say this without fear of contradiction. I have a PhD, so I've learned to never say always or never, but 99 out of 100 of you will live a shorter life than you would have had Obamacare not been passed, and you will experience more pain and suffering before you die than you would have had Obamacare not passed. Let's remember, the president said, well, perhaps I shouldn't, my grandmother, he's who he loved, perhaps my grandmother shouldn't have been given hip transplant while she was dying with cancer. With shepherds like that, you need no wolves. You're going to start seeing a lot more wheelchairs and a lot more crutches because they're not going to pay for the knee replacements and the hip replacements. It costs a lot less to just give you pain pills and a wheelchair or pain pills and crutches. Trust me, I know whereof I speak. I've lived under the model for Obamacare in Great Britain. But when I was living in Great Britain, I realized in an experiential way just how unique America is. Because I realized that the British, when they disagree about everything, have their Britishness to keep them together. They, while I was living there, they found us a, a a skeleton in a cave somewhere close to Oxford, and they discovered that the, that the skeleton dated from 1000 A.D., and there were still people living in the village who were related to this guy a thousand years ago. We don't have that. We are from virtually every race 
in every country in the world. Somebody asked me today on the radio, what does Hawaii have to do with the future of America? And I said, well, first of all, we're so evenly divided as a country right now that in every election, every vote counts. We learned that in 2000, didn't we? But in addition, Hawaii is America's future. You're the most demographically and and ethnically diverse state in the country, but you are where America is going. In, 20, in the 2020 census, the two largest states, California and Texas, will have no majority population. And in 2050, no state will have a majority population. All 50 states will have a collection of different minorities, but no majority population. But we're held together as Americans by a, a, an assent to and a commitment to and an allegiance to a certain set of ideals and beliefs that are embodied in our founding document, which is the Declaration of Independence. I had a liberal argue with me about that. He said, that's not our founding document. Our founding document is the Constitution. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I agree with Abe Lincoln. When Abe Lincoln at Gettysburg said four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth from this continent a new nation. You should scrap four score and seven from 1863, and you come up with 1776, and that's the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution. So sit down and shut up. <laughs> Abe has settled it. And our Declaration of Independence says that we believe that all men are created equal, and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these rights are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we go on to say that we believe that a government gets its authority from the consent of the governed. It is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And, you know, I've always wondered, how did Lincoln say that at Gettysburg? You know, we don't have any tape recordings, so we don't, you know, we don't have any way to go back and check. Well, now, just exactly how did he say that? Well, well now we know, because there was a reporter that was three rows back, and he wrote at the time. He wrote down the way that Lincoln said it. He said, government of the people, by the people, for the people. That our government gets its authority from the consent of the governed. We are a self-governing nation. And the authority resides in the people. And from our very beginning, we have said that we believe that we're endowed by our creator, by God. And when our founding fathers declared their independence from Great Britain, they didn't declare their independence from God, just from Great Britain. In fact, they said they were trusting their cause to the God of the universe. And they were very clear that they understood that they were under the authority of God, and they believed they had God's blessings for what they were doing. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have... The last thing that Moses says to his, you know, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. God calls his people together and he gives them a final warning. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and following. I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. 
But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether you passest over Jordan to go and possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. God puts that choice before countries. He puts that choice before each generation. He's put that choice before America. If we choose life and obedience, there's blessing. If we choose death and disobedience, there's cursing. And make no mistake about it, if God will judge his chosen nation, the Israelites, he will judge the United States of America. In fact, I would argue that we are in the midst of judgment now, that the things that have befallen us as a nation are a direct result of our having chosen disobedience rather than obedience, and our having chosen death, life, and chosen the path of cursing rather than the path of blessing. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. And in too many ways, since the 1960s, America has chosen the wrong path. We have sown to destruction, and we are now reaping the whirlwind. And there really is only one hope left for us as a nation, and that is repentance and confession and revival and awakening and reformation. And we do stand at a crossroads. We are at a place, and it's a strategic place. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Walk circumspectly, not as fools. Redeem because the days are evil. Well, now, circumspectly, we get our word circumcision from it. We get our word circumference from it. He says, walk circumspectly. You know, the way you would walk if you were in an unfamiliar place late at night, you would walk and you would be looking around to see if there are any threats. Walk circumspectly, not as fools. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word evil there is the word Paneros is not the word for a state of evil. It is the word for active, aggressive evil. Contrary to what many Americans assume, we do not live in a neutral world. We do not live in a good world. We live in a world that is under the judgment of God and that is racked by sin and by incessant demonic activity. The devil is a roaring lion walking about seeking story in the wilderness in the Gospels, he is called the tempter. Now, in Greek, that's a participle. And so he should be this way. It really should be translated the tempting one. It is the incessant, continual activity of the devil to be tempting us and to be enticing us and lying to us and telling us that here's the path of happiness when it's the path of destruction and enticing us to self-destructive and malevolent behavior. My 
grandma, my East Texas grandmother was one of the most positive people I've ever known. And when I was about 12 years old, I was watching her make biscuits, really good biscuits, by the way. And I said, Granny, I've never heard you say anything negative about anybody. I bet you could find something positive to say about the devil. And she said, well, he is a hard worker. (laughs) Unfortunately, the devil is not guilty of sloth. He is a hard worker. And we must understand this, respect not as fools, redeeming the time. The word time there is not the word chronos for chronology or solar time. It's the word kairos, which is the word for time in its propitious moment. When things are just right, when that's the strategic moment. We live in such a strategic moment as Americans today. When things are bad enough that more and more of us realize they cannot go on the way they are going without a fundamental change in who we are as a nation. But it hasn't gotten so bad that we're just literally imploding on ourselves and we're beyond redemption. And it is in that season that we must redeem the time and redeem it for good. Now, fortunately, God has given us a prescription for how it is to be turned around. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this is that it's a conditional promise. God makes both conditional and unconditional promises in Scripture. In Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, in Greek, that's a quadruple negative. Now, in English, a double negative is incorrect grammar. It's a no-no. But in Greek, if you stack up the negatives, that's emphasis. If I were going to give you a good East Texas translation of that, it would be, I'm not ever going to leave you, not never know how. (laughs) Once we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, he comes and takes up a boat in our life, and he will never leave us, ever. This is a conditional promise. If my people do certain things then God will respond in a certain way. If we don't, he won't. God doesn't negotiate. God doesn't arbitrate. God doesn't compromise. The blessing is in the place where God says the blessing is going to be. If you want to get the blessing, you've got to be in the posture in the place God says the blessing is. If my people. Now, who are my people? In the Old Testament context, it was those people within the elect nation that truly understood the sacrificial system, and they were trusting God was going to pay the sacrifice for their sin in the same way that we look back to the cross, they looked forward to the cross. Not all of the, not all of the chosen nation was saved, but within it, there were those that were saved. In the New Testament context, it's those people who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity is a worldview, Christianity is a philosophy. It is a system of truth, but it is first and foremost 
a personal relationship. And it's not third person singular. It's first person singular. There's all the difference in the world and eternity in knowing the difference between knowing Jesus as the Savior and knowing Jesus as your Savior. Now, I told you I grew up in a bicultural home, and on both sides, my family has been in America for about four centuries. My father's family came to Virginia in 1636. My mother's family came to Massachusetts in about 1650. So I have 19 ancestors that I know of who fought for the Union, and 17 who fought for the Confederacy. At the Battle of Gettysburg, they were actually shooting at each other. If they'd been better shots, I might not be here. (laughs) And so, uh, growing up, I got two slightly varying versions of the Civil War and uh, was forced to do my own study. And out of that study, I came to have particular admiration for two men. Two men who, in their own very different ways, typify much of what is best about the American character. Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee. I have been to Lincoln's birthplace in Kentucky. I've been to his home in Illinois. I've read multi-volume biographies of his life. I have been to Ford's Theater, where he was assassinated. I have stood on the spot where the historians tell us he stood to give what is surely the greatest speech ever given by an American president, his second inaugural address in 1865. I have been to Lee's home. I have sat in the pew at Christ Church, Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia, where Robert E. Lee worshiped every Sunday that he was in town. The church he came to, back to the first Sunday after Appomattox. And at the conclusion of the service, as is the custom of the Episcopal Church, the rector invited people to come to the communion rail for the Lord's Supper, for communion, and for the very first time, a newly freed African-American got up and came and knelt at the communion rail. And everybody in the church just stared at him like a cow looking at a new gate, until General Lee got up from his pew and came and knelt beside the newly freed slave. When he was asked afterward why he did what he did, he said, Sir, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I know a lot about Robert E. Lee. But you would think that I had lost my mind or at least had been smoking something illegal and inhaling it if I were to say to you, I know Abraham Lincoln. I know Robert E. Lee. They both died more than eight decades before I was born. I know my wife. I know my mother and father. I know my three children. I have a personal relationship with them. Christianity is having a personal relationship with Jesus. We've run out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Dr. Richard Land's study entitled, The Separation of Church and State. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. 
Join us here next time for part two of this exciting study with Dr. Pat Zucrin, right here on Evidence and Answers.